So today we are going to talk about the Great Commission, and this is in the Word in quite a few different places throughout the Gospels and in Acts, stated in slightly different terms in each one. But the one I picked is from Matthew 28. It's kind of the most well-known one. And honestly, I've got the two verses, but I'm really only going to go through the first one today. Um, so Matthew 28, 18 through 20 says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we'll just start at the beginning. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We'll break that down a little bit. What does that look like? I'll just read you a few verses here. Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That's talking about Jesus. That's Daniel's vision, messianic vision of Jesus. That's what it looks like to have all authority in heaven and earth be given to Jesus. Another uh, couple verses, Ephesians 1, verses 20 through 21 which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Another great example of this is what we talked about last time I was up here, which was Revelation chapter 5, where Jesus is the only one that's worthy to open the scroll. Remember how I told you that that was kind of like Operation Footstool? (laughs) This is all authority on heaven and earth being given to Jesus. And if this sounds familiar, it's probably because it is. Because it's what BJ has been talking about for three weeks now, or longer. Um, So it should sound familiar. Um, the victory that Jesus won over sin, death, and all the powers and authorities in the spiritual realm is what this is all about. So I wasn't really sure, I'm never really sure, exactly what I'm going to talk about on a Sunday. You know, I have to pray about it and ask the Lord what he would like me to say. And um, I prayed, and I felt like, I think I'll talk about the Great Commission. And um, I didn't make any connection with that to what BJ had been talking about, Um, and I started working on it before his last Sunday. And then I came and listened to him talk last Sunday, and I was just totally blown away. It was a little bit of a duh moment, honestly. I'm like, really? I didn't see before how connected this was going to be? But it still just amazed me. Like, everything that he had talked about is so connected to the Great Commission and our motivation. It's really powerful and motivational to look at all the context that he brought, and picture Jesus' victory in those terms. Um, So I'm just going to kind of review that a little bit. 
Um, so in Matthew 16, verse 13, remember, Jesus is with the disciples at Caesarea Philippi. Let's see how many times I can say that correctly. <laughs> um, and, and what Jesus said there, he said, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And now, in the Great Commission, here he is telling the disciples again that he's going to build his church, his church that will not, that will take over, <laughs> that will spread throughout the earth. And just to remind you a little bit of what was going on at Caesarea Philippi. So this is the place where all the pagan worship was happening, right? So you had the Baal worship in the ancient times. Then you had the worship of the Greek god Pan. And you had Caesar worship. So there was all this stuff going on. It involved blood sacrifices as well as all these fertility rituals involving prostitution and bestiality between men and goats. This is how they would welcome the fertility gods out of their winter hiding into spring. So there's all these debaucherous things going on at Caesarea Philippi. And this is the place where Jesus chooses to tell his disciples, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I just love the illustrations that can come out of this. There was so much blood sacrifice going on that sometimes the headwaters of the Jordan ran red. And there's Jesus standing in this place, making this declaration with his disciples. And it makes me think about how this was not a place where good Jewish boys would go. <laughs> He's there with his disciples. Good Jewish boys don't go here. And there's Jesus, and he is not clutching his pearls. Like, oh my goodness. You know, he's not clutching his pearls. He's saying, it's the sick who need a doctor. That is such a powerful illustration for us. He's going into these dark places and taking his victory. He's making his stand against the darkness right where it's strongest. And he is unashamed. He's not afraid of it. He's not embarrassed. None of those things. And that's just such a powerful illustration for us today. You know, don't get so pearl clutchy, so isolated in your, you know, purity Christian bubble that you just faint (laughs) whenever you see something going on that's, People be doing bad things. That's what else can we expect? That's the way it is. But Jesus was not afraid to confront those things right where they were happening. And I mean, this is also just a powerful illustration of Colossians 2, verse 10 and verse 15. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. And you have been made complete in Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So these these people with all this pagan worship, they were making a public spectacle. They were unashamed. But he made even a greater public spectacle when he triumphed over them by the cross and by his resurrection. So that's the first portion about all authority in heaven and earth being given to Jesus. The next part is the next two words. Go, therefore. All right, so we have our foundation, and now we see go, therefore. Therefore is a a conjunction, and in the Greek, it is the word un. It's used about 526 times in the New Testament, and it's typically translated like we see it here, as therefore. It means now then, accordingly so. It says to us, Here's how the dots connect. 
When we see a therefore, we're often being led to a set of practical instructions based on the source of the power and the motivation for those actions. We could do just a big study for probably most of a year and all the therefores in the New Testament. Paul uses it a lot. He will build an idea by showing you what the foundation for something is, what the motivation is, what the power is for something. And then he will say, therefore, here's what we do because of that. Here's the action that we take because of that. I think as Christians and as the church, people get frustrated when the action doesn't work out the way that they thought it was going to, or where they can't understand how they're supposed to do something. And I think in those moments, it would be good for us to go back and look at what comes before the therefore. What's the motivation? What's the foundation? Because that's where we have to build. That's what we have to come out of for everything that we do as the church and as the body of Christ is our foundations. And uh, we got to get back to the foundation. In this context, the authority of Jesus is our why. The authority of Jesus is the source of our power for our going. The authority of Jesus, the all authority in heaven on earth, that is our reason for going. Our why is not out of guilt. Our why for going is not out of compulsion. Our why is not out of fear of reprisal if we don't do as we're told. It's out of joy and the victory won for us through love by Jesus. So many are intimidated when we talk about sharing faith, when we talk about preaching the gospel with our words and with our lives. It's intimidating. The world is a crazy place. But all of this context and this example that we have in Jesus we have to ask ourselves, what are you going to encounter out there that Jesus has not already defeated? He has painted this picture. He has laid it out. He has equipped us with the Holy Spirit. He wants to partner with us and work through us to make disciples of all nations. What is it that can come against us when we have all of that? I mean, it's really something to ask ourselves when we do feel intimidated. So, one last illustration from the situation, the setting at Caesarea Philippi. This is also the place where Peter makes his confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And when Peter says that, when Jesus says, who do you say I am? And Peter says, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replies with, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The significance of this event just echoes throughout time. It is still so true today. And what I want to hit on is Peter making this declaration in one of the darkest places he could possibly make it in. Because the Holy Spirit is unstoppable. He goes into all these places. There's no prison that can keep him out. There's nothing. And this is still taking place today. People all over the world are making this declaration of faith in the darkest places because the Holy Spirit is unstoppable, because God's words will be fulfilled. And flesh and blood will go so far as to try and conceal the truth, <laughs> but it can't. It can't. It's revealed by the Father. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It's not revealed by flesh and blood, 
but it's revealed by the Father. So we're going, therefore. We've got our foundation. We understand our motivation and our why, and we're going. What are we doing? We're making disciples. This is the next portion. Making disciples. Proclaim the gospel through varied means, empowered by the Holy Spirit. I think that when people think about the Great Commission, the first thing that comes to mind quite often is evangelism, or is preaching the gospel. And that is very true. But the Great Commission goes so far beyond just that first interaction, just that saving faith. It's about making disciples. It's a continuing process after someone comes to saving faith in Jesus. Disciple itself means learner or pupil. And discipling is all about the long game. It is a long game. Um, This is a job for the whole church, making full use of all the gifts the Lord has given us. It's everybody, all hands on deck. If you come from an agricultural community, you know that when harvest time comes, no one sits out. Everyone participates because it's a limited time window when that job has got to be completed. And it's very, very important. So many preparations are made just to go out and bring in that harvest. I think it's very true in the spirit too. It's very true for the church as well. So discipleship, making disciples. This is living life with people and learning from each other. Helping each other up when one stumbles. Being humble toward each other and loving each other. This is being the church. This is helping someone to progressively learn the word of God, become a matured, growing disciple. This is to train in the truths of Scripture and the lifestyle required, the application of the truths of Scripture. How should we live our lives? This is being the church. As we disciple people, there's going to be, we're going to be all at different stages. You know, there's going to be someone who might be a little further along in this area and someone that needs a little help further back here in this area. And I just think that's such a beautiful picture of the church. All of these people with their different strengths and their different experiences coming together to support each other, to lift up each other, and empower each other to greater levels of maturity. And a true sign of strength is how we bear with those that are weaker in faith than we are. That is a true sign of strength. Not your power, not what you can do, not what your, all your giftings are and what you're capable of, your talents, but it's how you bear with those who are weaker in faith than you that are maybe not as far along in a certain area as you are. We all must be patient with each other, not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to. So this was an interesting verse to come up as I was studying discipleship. And at first I couldn't really figure out how does this even relate to discipleship because Jesus here is talking to the disciples. He says, he said to them, therefore every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out his storeroom new treasures as well as old. So in this, give you some context here. Jesus is talking about um, those that know the Old Testament, the Jews that understand and know the Old Testament, and then they come to saving faith, and they also understand the truth of Jesus and how all of that works together. So they're like those that have new treasures as well as old treasures, and that was very advantageous for teaching people back then. Um, But I think this also relates to us. 
we all have these storerooms inside of ourselves. <laughs> we have all this learning and all these experiences, these experiential learning times that we've had with the Lord through the Spirit. And these are the things that we bring out. These are our new and old treasures that we bring out to be ready scribes, to teach people. And those who instruct thrive on being instructed. And we're instructed by the Lord. So I just wanted to bring this into an application where I know that we all uh, have these breakthroughs with the Lord. You know, you, you pray for something, you have a breakthrough, you have a deliverance, you in some way get a greater measure of knowledge of who the Lord is, who you are in the Lord, all of these things that take place for us as we grow and mature as disciples. And I just want to say, who does that increase belong to? I mean, what do we do in response to that? Do we put it in the Christian trophy case? You know, behind glass and every once in a while buff it and polish it and make sure it looks good? I mean, or do we get some mileage out of it? You know, does it make you bolder maybe? Bolder to proclaim the gospel, to live it out? Does it maybe make you more compassionate and more understanding for people who are in a different place than you are? I mean... We should ask the Lord, you know, how do you want us to invest this back into the kingdom? We've got to work out what God works in. So we've got to bring those treasures out, those new and those old treasures as we disciple other people. Those testimonies are going to help those people to grow and they're going to encourage them. So who are we making disciples of? Go back. All nations. That's everybody, the whole world, right? So Jesus is saying here, um, don't stop at the Jews. Go out. Um, every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. So apostle means a sent one. And this can mean a, like it's application is a little bit different for us today. We had a conversation about this on our pastoral, our pastoral team, and somebody made a really good point that being a sent one today could mean as much as just going outside your front door with the attitude of being ready to be used by the Lord. Um, so right after Jesus's death and resurrection, obviously the church and the gospel was very geographically centered at ground zero. So it was totally essential for them to really go out into all the earth. And we're still doing that today, and we should still be doing that today. We send out missionaries and all sorts of things like that. I just want to open up your thinking about what it may mean to be sent. And that it might just mean going out your front door and talking to whoever is in your sphere of influence. That That is being sent as well. So we see the church rises up out of this long game of discipling. I mean, can you see how all of these living stones just get built on one another and become this giant house? As more disciples are, as more disciples are made, the capacity to evangelize and make more disciples increases. So it's just this exponential growth. So at this point, <clears throat> I'm going to talk a little bit more about, I'm going to, go from this to talking a little bit more about a couple components of the Great Commission that I just see is really important, some principles and some concepts for us to apply as we look into this. So, compassion. I want to talk about compassion. 
because this is such an important concept for the church to grasp as we look at the Great Commission, as we look at preaching the gospel, as we look at raising people up. Compassion is at the forefront. It's one of the keys. So Matthew 9, 36 says, uh, this is Jesus. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. So back in Jesus' day, the religious leaders weren't shepherding people. They were worse than no shepherd at all. So in Matthew 23, Jesus declares the seven woes against the Pharisees. And one of the things he says is, For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. This is still, these sorts of things are still happening today. Throughout time, people have been lost and harassed. And they still are. It's terribly grievous when in their desperation they're seized upon by the world and by false shepherds, by people that make promises to them that they cannot keep. In their desperation, they end up in these places where they're taken advantage of. And this is terribly grievous when they're seized upon by the world, when the church is amply supplied to lead them to the Lord. This is an occasion for deep compassion, like what Jesus had. People really need the truth. They really need it. And this is, we should have compassion for them. Another scripture in this area that's important, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. As you share the gospel and disciple those in your in younger stages of growth, recall your condition at your own calling and they, at your own times of inexperience. Remember where you came from. Not necessarily where you're at right now, but where did you come from? Remember those times. And when you suffer in trials, when you go through those phases of growth with the Lord that are painful, where he is shaping you, where he's breaking you down and making you something new, when he's really doing some work in you, when you go through those trials, one thing you can do is pray and ask God to grow compassion in you in those moments. Because you're really seeing inside yourself. You're seeing your own weakness. And it's a unique time to surrender to him, for him to grow compassion in you for other people that are struggling. And he will do it. Remember that our God gives life to the dead, and he calls those things which are not as though they were. Far be it from us to say who can and can't be used in the kingdom. I mean, far be it from us to say what God can't do or to put limitations on him. We never want to do that. So back to the Pharisees. <laughs> they give us many cautionary tales about lacking compassion. We see it over and over again. And there's one point where Jesus tells them something. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Sacrifice here means religious ritual. 
and mercy translates to the idea of covenant faithfulness, something that should have led the religious leaders to care for the sinners just as Jesus did. But they rejected them because they didn't understand this concept. Their hearts were hard. There's a principle here that we need to heed, I think. Something the Pharisees did was they prioritized those elements of their religion that they had natural affection for. The public prayers, you know, the speaking in the synagogues, the places of honor. I mean, they were the teachers and the scribes. They were the they they had these places of honor. They were the teachers, but they prioritized those things that made their flesh feel good. And they even took it a step further. They had pride in those things. They had selfish ambition in those things. They wanted the recognition of man. They neglected the things of religion that mortify their flesh, like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And this is why they criticized Jesus for eating with sinners, all the while missing that it is the sinners that need a doctor, and that their God, the God they espouse, deserves mercy over sacrifice. We have to be careful not to prioritize those things of our religion, which we have natural affection for, even if they're good things. You know, we do a lot of wonderful things together because we love each other. (laughs) And it's great. It's fantastic. I enjoy it. It's a great joy of my life to spend time with people and to do the things that I naturally love within these four walls. But we also can't neglect the times when we're challenged. But we know something's the will of God. We got to go do it. And, uh, we got to do those things too. So we can't just fall into this rut of doing the things that feel good and that are easy and that are comforting and pleasurable. Like Brent used to say a lot, comfort and pleasure. (laughs) Whereas the Pharisees were more into religion, self-recognition. You know, maybe there's times where we have to confront our comfort and pleasure rut. We may not feel like we really relate much to the Pharisees, but as culture changes, so does temptation. And human beings are often drawn away by pretty things, no matter what time they live in. So another concept that is really important for the Great Commission is fruitfulness. And this is what I'm going to end with, is talking a little bit about fruitfulness. It's what the Great Commission is all about. God wants to partner with his children to produce fruit, to multiply. And if you go back to Genesis, Genesis is where we find most biblical themes. That's where a lot of themes start in Genesis, and then they carry themselves out. They play themselves out through these different settings and people all throughout the Bible. So we'll go back there and look uh, look at what uh, the plan for fruitfulness is. So in chapter 1, we read that God created man, male and female, that he blessed them, and he told them to be fruitful and multiply. This is right at the beginning. He provided everything they needed for their multiplication. He gave them the food. He gave them the seeds. He created the environment for them. He gave them everything they needed to be fruitful and multiply. He's done the same for us. John 15, 15-16 tells about our spiritual provision for fruitfulness. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends, for everything that I learned from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you, so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. 
This isn't the only time in Genesis when God tells people to go forth, be fruitful, and multiply. In chapter 9 of Genesis, after the flood, God tells Noah and his family, As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. He made provision for their fruitfulness by saving them from sin, judgment, and death through the flood. He's done the same for us. He's made provision for us by saving us, by rescuing us from sin and death and judgment. Colossians 1, 13-14. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Do you believe that? That that's who you are? If you are a member of the body, you're part of this church, you're part of the church, that's who you are. And then in chapter 15 of Genesis, God tells Abraham that his fruitfulness will be comparable to the stars, too many to count. And we know that was a promise and that God was talking about his worldwide church, his family, his people. And he's made provision for that fruitfulness for us as well. Isaiah 55, verses 10 through 11. For just as rain and snow fall from heaven, and do not return without watering the earth, making it bud and sprout, and providing seed to sow and food to eat, so my word, which proceeds from my mouth, will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please, and it will prosper where I send it. Just like BJ ended with last week, he has made the way. He's made provision for all that we need to do. He's appointed the times and the seasons, and he's empowered us with the Holy Spirit to go forth boldly, to preach the gospel, to make disciples. He's given us his gifts in abundance. We are well equipped to do the work to do his will. And so we have to go forth and do it in boldness. And that's really all there is to it. By all the different varied means that he gives us in his grace. Let's pray. Lord, we trust you and we believe you. You have amply supplied everything that we need. We just offer ourselves up to you, Lord, as vessels. We want to go where you would send us. Everywhere we go, Lord, we want to be a light for you. We want to be the salt and light, Lord. We don't want to hide under a basket. We want to be the light. We want to draw. We want to talk about people so that you can draw them to yourself. We want to talk to people about you, Lord. We want to tell them the truth. Help us to love each other, to love each other well, to raise each other up, to think of each other, to pray for each other. Lord, I just pray that you would use this church mightily, Lord, for your will. That you would work through us. That we would set all things aside just doing exactly what you want to do. Making that our main focus, Lord. Just you. We just thank you so much, Lord, for all that you've done and all that you are going to do, Lord. In Jesus' name, 
Amen.